When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. We have a special episode today for the Professional Book Nerds podcast brought to you by Overdrive. I have Joe here, and we're going to give you some context about this really special episode that we did. Yes. Hello, everyone. We were able to host Audrey Blake, which is shocker, not one person, but two for a special look behind the curtain for our Big Library Read program. So if you're not familiar, Big Library Read, we share a special title across the world, both in ebook and audiobook format. It is available to everyone simultaneously. And then we have a really cool discussion board on Big Library biglibraryread.com, where we encourage everyone to join in the conversation, share some of their feelings, and we also connect the author into that space as well so they can respond to folks. So this episode today is the three of us, Emma, Jill, and I, interviewing writing partners, Regina Saroy and Jama Fixon. Exactly. Thank you, Emma. (laughs) You're welcome. I had their pronunciation handy. Perfect. So we've got Regina, we've got Jema, and they are talking with us all about this great book. So if you listen in, you can hear our questions for them in our typical kind of episode format. And then we've got some questions from the discussion board and from our live audience participation forum. So we did this interview live and then be on the lookout when you see the next BLR title pop up in your Libby app, know that there is a discussion happening online and that there will also be very likely a live interview where you can see the three of us talking to the author. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And then of course, check us out on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. If you want to email us or talk about the Big Library Read title, we'd love to hear some more from you. Professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Happy listening. Thank you all for joining us today for our special Big Library Read discussion with Audrey Blake about The Girl in His Shadow, which is our latest Big Library Read pick. Um, And we're so excited to have all of you here. We have some questions. We're going to have time for others to ask questions. So you can use the Q&A feature on Zoom to put those questions in. Now, to get us started, I'm gonna go ahead and address something that I'm sure some of our attendees may not have known before they signed into this event, which is that Audrey Blake is actually the pen name of co-writers Regina and Jema. So we have two writers with us today to talk about their book. And we'll get into their you know, writing process a little bit later on in this conversation. But something I wanted to start with is, can you share um, the story behind the pen name, Audrey Blake? Regina, you want to go ahead and kick us off with that? 
Yeah. So it, a pen name became a marketing thing because my name is Regina Saroy and my partner's name is Jama Fixon. And those are two really difficult names to say, spell, and remember. So when we sold the book, um, they asked, by any chance, would you be willing to come up with one really easy name to remember? And they said, it's always helpful if it's close to the start of the alphabet too. So that was what they gave us. And my oldest daughter is named Audrey and Jama's oldest son is named Blake. And so we put our children's names together and that's how we have our pen name. I love that. I always find it so fascinating how those pen names come about since it seems like we can get there in many different ways. <laughs> now, it's likely that everyone is here because they've read or enjoyed your book as part of the Big Library Read program. And I'm wondering, though, for those that maybe haven't read it or haven't finished it yet, if you could just tell us, Jema, a little bit about what The Girl in His Shadow is about. You bet. It's uh, the story of an aspiring female surgeon uh, in London in the 1840s. Uh, this time, you know, it's hard for women to do a lot of things. Um, and so the idea of a woman uh, conducting dissections and doing surgeries is just really, really hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. So for a lot of the book, she's kind of forced to work uh, in secret without people really knowing her full contributions. Um, but it comes to a head when uh, an accidental discovery um, that she makes, uh, which has the potential to revolutionize medicine, um, you know, does she sit on it and keep it to herself or does she defend her work? Absolutely. It all comes down to that one big decision. But before we even get to that decision, what if we talked about the characters? So Regina, uh, what was the inspiration for this story? I, of course, I open this to both of you, but I will start with Regina. Are your characters like Nora or Horace or Daniel based on any real people, either in history or in your life? Um, so for me, the the story all was born with the creation of Horace. He started the story just as he's the first character you meet. He was the impetus for telling this story. And he's a conglomeration of John Hunter and John Snow, which are two contemporary British surgeons of the day. And they were both just incredibly fascinating in their own right. And their personalities were incredibly fascinating. And just the more that I read about this time period and the medical and scientific discoveries that were happening, this man just came out of the shadows of London in the 1840s and he made me laugh and he made me listen and I was fascinated. And so for me, it all began with Horace. Jema, did you have uh, kind of any inspiration for characters as well? Or was this kind of, uh, is this where kind of co-writing comes together? <laughs> oh, definitely. So when Regina was talking to me about, we were reading the same books and about this Horace Croft character, based, this composite, he was really exciting to us, but we really wanted to write about a woman. So we had to dig a lot deeper to find um the historical inspiration for Nora. Um, but we did find some really fascinating women who inspired us. And 
you know, forgive me, Regina, and this is totally my perspective, but, you know, as far as drawing inspiration from our real lives, I see a lot of Regina's husband, Justin, in the character of Daniel, because he, (laughs) Justin is fantastic. He's so supportive of both of us. And, you know, some of his, his mannerisms, I think I, I see a little bit of Justin there. I think my husband shows up somehow or other in all my books. <laughs> he makes an appearance. <laughs> uh, I love that. <laughs> so uh, this is historical fiction. It's set in 19th century London, and it's incredibly detailed based on the time period and all of the medical um, information and um, surgeries that happen. And so you know, because there are two of you, I'm really curious what the writing and research process was like, Um, you know, from like the idea to research to how do you even, you know, both of you write the same book. So Jamo, why don't you go ahead and and start and let us know, and then we'll have Regina pop in too. Well, Regina is so committed to uh, making the past come alive and breathe again. And her background is in history. Uh, And so uh, her ability to find stuff out is kind of uncanny. So one time I wrote something in, it was a scene where they were using a vaporizer and trying to put down or anesthetize a patient. And so I just put in a bunch of filler words to like find back later. And Regina somehow found out like the exact dose (laughs) that would have been used. (laughs) And it was like, holy cow, girl, drop the mic. (laughs) This is so she is like a a bloodhound when it comes to finding uh, the facts. And so a lot of our sources are from uh, contemporary journal articles. So we go on to JSTOR, uh, if we want a story about a patient with a, uh, a, an appendix problem, then we just search for appendicitis, 1840 to 1850. And there's just like a wealth of cases. And the way the articles were written then, so much of the doctor's personalities come through. Um, it's really exciting. Yeah, there were... Um... There were times when I think Jama and I shed tears reading these old, old journals from, you know, they're scientific journals and they're writing up case studies and that's what they're there for. And we would just be reading and even though they state it in these scientific terms, the humanity behind them and the suffering behind them and sometimes the unexpected joy behind them. I know that we I know that we shed tears over that research and it was just so real to us. It was so important that we somehow make the world recognize just the everyday uh, challenges of, of our own ancestors, of what they went through. I love that your process is so thorough. It really comes across on the page. I really felt immersed in the time period. And so Regina, we'll start with you. I'm wondering if there were things that you learned during the research process or like cool medical procedures or things of the time that didn't make their way into the book. There were, well, we couldn't write everything that we wanted to into the book, all of the cases that touched us. Um, 
what I can tell you, and I've had people say, it sounds like you've done so much medical research. Like, would you know how to save my life? And I'm like, well, I know how to kill you because I know how to give you arsenic for a little cold. So I can, I can hand you some mercury if you get the sniffles. Um, it, it is amazing to me that we survived our own treatments. That's what I will say shocked me. And I think that does come into the book, but it wasn't stupidity. And I don't in any way want to make it sound like these people were so stupid. They just gave you arsenic. They were, they were on the cusp and doing everything they could to learn everything they could and to solve these problems. It was not stupidity, but I'm just amazed we survived. I think that's a very fair point. It's it is amazing considering the the lack of hand washing and just so many things that are super a part of our lives today that back then is responsible for the majority of the issues we were seeing. Yeah. I will say a lot of people um online have been asking like why aren't you mentioning hand washing? Why aren't they washing their hands? Because they didn't. I because they didn't. And um I think I think some people think we were omitting part of it. And I know that we don't come in and explain that thoroughly because our characters wouldn't have known to explain that thoroughly. It was just life. They did not have the germ theory yet. I I can tell you when the three of us, Emma, Joe, and I were coming like working together to come up with our questions for that. We brought that up. We're like, they didn't wash their hands. Like nobody (laughs) washed. They didn't wash their hands because they didn't think they needed to. Right. <laughs> right. I think of surgery galleries being all white because they thought you could see germs. So if there was any dinge to the wall, they just wiped it down. So if your hands looked normal, there was there was nothing on them. <laughs> it did make us extremely grateful in reading through some of the medical procedures that we ha- have modern medicine. Um, yeah, Me that too. was certainly eye opening. <laughs> That's that sure. we've come so far and but that they were really trying to make you know strides during that time period given the knowledge and resources that they had I do it really is a really exciting point. time because like they were making such huge steps forward and you know we're just a couple a few decades off from germ theory and again that like it's another huge breakthrough and uh I get chills just thinking about it it is so exciting that the real life impacts these discoveries had Absolutely. Uh, to pivot a little bit from our what we've been talking about so far about the book, let's take a big step back and talk about Big Library Read. Jamo, we'll start with you. How did you feel hearing The Girl in His Shadow was chosen for the Big Library Read title this summer? Well, I think it took me like two or three seconds to like breathe again. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like a, a laugh cry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, Regina, how I'm, about you? Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Jema. It's like, if I was going to choose a word, it would be staggering. I, I think I got the email and I, it just takes me a while to process. And so I got the email and I was like, that's neat. Okay. That sounds good. And then walk away and then just want to weep <laughs> and just think, well, how is it happening? Like how, how did they find us? How did they know? What does that mean? Um, it's just like a huge validation because when Jama and I wrote this book, we didn't have an agent. We didn't have a publisher. We just 
came together and we said, this is the story we want to tell. Well, what's the genre? I don't know. Medicine in the 1840s. That's not a genre. Like we didn't even know like how to tell people about this. And they would ask me about the book and I'd be like, well, there's heck of blood. I don't know, but it's not gory. It's, it's, it's sweet. It's sweet with lots of blood. I just, it, there's no like way to describe it. So the fact that somehow it found a home in people's hearts, I just, it's overwhelming. Yeah. And to both of you, um, what has it been like to be able to kind of engage with folks online, some of the different discussion boards? I know I've seen both of you hopping in and answering questions. What is that? What has that been like? It's thrilling. It's thrilling. (laughs) Like I, (laughs) um, I love, I love hearing like the questions and I just want to be there. And, um, when I answer one question on the website, it won't let me answer another one while it's waiting for my comment to clear. And so I'm like, I want to go and answer everyone's and I can't. (laughs) So, um, but I love the curiosity because that's why this book is here. This book is here because Jamie and I were just burning with curiosity and to see that curiosity burning in the readers, it makes us feel so close to them. That people are thinking about it and they have things to say. And it's as a writer, it's such a unique opportunity to have that glimpse into, you know, how your story is experienced by other people. Uh, you know, I've always thought reading as far as like the creative arts is, well, I mean, it's my favorite for obvious reasons, but the thing that is exciting about it is you need two imaginations for your work to exist as a writer, you know, and as a writer, I want to give readers enough that I'm inviting their imagination to come and participate with me and make something with me. Uh, And so being able to see that now in the discussions and how, you know, it impacted them and what they felt about this and that it's, like, I don't, I don't think it can get any better than that. Right. I can tell your readers, um, have lots of questions to ask both of you, which is so fantastic. They're so engaged with the book, um, both in the, the Q and A that we have going on right now, but as Joe referenced, we have a discussion board as part of the big library read. So if you have not, if our viewers have not done that, you can go to biglibrary.com and um, participate in the discussion board there. And on there, there was a section where people, if they wanted and had questions specifically for the authors, they could share them. And we thought um, some of them were so good, we wanted to ask them ourselves. So this question came from um, Meredith on the discussion board, and she wants to know what was the most challenging part of the book to write, if there was one? Well, sorry, from, I, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I don't want to walk, talk over anyone. No, no. Um, for me, the most challenging part to write is balancing characters being ahead of their time, because this was a time when people did step ahead of their time, but also making them live in the world that they were in. And I think it does a disservice to them if I take back all my sensibilities from the 21st century and try to paste them onto those people that haven't experienced what we've experienced. And so striking that balance for Nora and, and for Daniel and Horace of putting them ahead of their time, but in their time was something that I just found to be such a 
delicate surgery in and of itself? I always struggle with about two thirds of the way through the book when all the different threads are coming together and just bringing them all together. So that's probably where we had the most rewriting or at least it felt like that to me, maybe because that's the part that I'm like, <laughs> so we have another um, wonderful question that we pulled from a reader on the discussion board. And what I love about this conversation is we're assuming that the majority of people have read the book. So we don't have to tiptoe too much around spoiling anything. Uh, but this question is from a reader. They wanted to know if you were to choose a medical invention that changed medicine, what would it be and why? As in the most influential one, maybe? Is what yes, saying. maybe. So from your research, if there was an invention that you encountered that you know changed medicine, which one you would pinpoint um, just in your knowledge of historical medical procedures? I think it's the one we did pinpoint, which mm -hmm. is anesthesia like that changed the entire ball game. It was all different after that. And um, our book, it happens in the year. It happens because of that. It was that discovery that set the entire scene of our book because we thought that was the moment. That was the moment where impossible things became possible. I agree. I mean, and it's hard because anesthesia, I mean, germ theory, theory is right up there for me, um, vaccination, antibiotics, like these are all so, so huge. And maybe someday we'll get to, I think we were torn because germ theory is so exciting, but we wanted to write about this time and maybe later we can explore germ theory a bit more because that's really fascinating too. I will say, I loved the scene where they were first sort of I don't want to say playing around with anesthesia, but just like giving it a go, like testing it on, you know, the dog, testing it on each other, making notes. That was a really, I guess, fun scene, but also made me think differently about how they would have done things like that back in the day, because there weren't necessarily like all these outlined procedures and trials and things it, where you could just be in the practice, like, all right, I'm going to try it on you. I'll keep watch and take notes. I found that that was really fascinating and really made me think, um, you know, as we talked about, about the differences in, in just all of these things, you know, now, and then back in the day where they wouldn't have had that guidance or those, those guidelines. And it really was truly pioneering how to use anesthesia back then. It's really terrifying. You know, the experiments that they did on, you know, poor patients who didn't know any better and had no other recourse for alternative care uh, on themselves, uh, on their pets. It's, it's pretty, pretty insane. Like, you know, medicine is not the same now, thank goodness. Um, the dogs, Duchess and Bruno are named after my dogs. I did enjoy in the, in that scene though, that everything worked out well, like considering they were just kind of giving it a go without any guidance, how scary it could have been. It was mm -hmm. nice that it, you know, it worked in their favor in that instance. Absolutely. The, the real Dr. Snow, um, that was the, a, the huge pioneering surgeon of, of anesthesia in Britain. Um, he had almost 100% success rate. If you can believe that he was so exact and so careful and he, as crude as his implements were, 
and the fact that you're literally putting these people to death and resurrecting them again, right? As to their understanding, they don't know why it's working or how it's happening. Um, to this day, we don't have full understanding of why it's working, um, not completely. And so um, his success rates were just so incredible that that's what inspired us to have Horace be so successful in his exactitude. You know, that's, I still like, I'm just struggling with almost a hundred percent success rate as, yeah. <laughs> as something brand new. Um, now, one question we saw a lot in the discussion boards that I'm excited I get to be the one to bring it up. Is there a sequel? Well, I know there's another book. Uh, so readers wanted to know if there's a sequel, but The Surgeon's Daughter uh, just uh, is, is just that. It came out in May of this year. Can you give our our viewers today a bit about what takes place in The Surgeon's Daughter? Jama, we'll start with you if you want to give us an overview. Sure. So we leave Nora um, traveling to Italy. So uh, The Surgeon's Daughter picks up there. Um, she has the opportunity to study at the University of Bologna, um, like Europe's oldest university. Um, and there was this fascinating culture there of of women in science, um, famous women physicists, famous women anatomists, famous women surgeons. And so being able to touch on that was so exciting to us. Um, she uh, meets and uh, spars with uh, an incredible mentor. And, um, but again, is still faced with um, people that don't wanna allow her space in, in this field. Um, and, uh, confronts real problems, uh, especially related to women's health because of the way um, uh, childbirth is managed uh, back then. Um, so she's got some pretty big tests and some pretty big hurdles and unhappily things are not going great for her, her family in London either. So um, it was hard to give the characters we love. So like, hard problems but uh it was also really exciting because we know them well and we love seeing them overcome and i'll ask just because i saw it pop up in the q a uh does harry make a reappearance in the sequel <laughs> that's that's from sandy sandy shout out to you <laughs> well, we sandy, love harry <laughs> we love harry <laughs> um Harry, Harry's story is not done yet, Sandy. Harry has more to, Harry has more to his story. Yeah. And so does Vickery. <laughs> okay. So follow-ups are necessary. <laughs> We're very excited to hear this. I was muted, but I gasped. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're all like, oh, okay. Well then, I have to get that, yeah the book all of us are going to be like fighting on Libby Libby for like all the copies (laughs) okay I'll tell you I'm not I'm not a great marketer I'm really not I'm not great at marketing myself but I I have to tell you that when they bought the surgeon's daughter they purchased this book that we had finished and then they said we'll take it and we'll take the sequel because we had told them that there was more to the story and so they bought it without knowing anything about what the sequel would be and so that was really scary for Jama and I, because we didn't hear we were being paid for a product and we didn't know if they would love it or hate it. And, and we were committed to make it. So 
Um, when we turned it in, that was a really scary moment for us. And maybe some of the most beautiful words that I have ever seen typed in an email is when it came back and um, the response was exceeded all expectations. And so we have had a lot of people say that they love the sequel more than the first book. And that that was a hard fought battle because that sequel was written in 2020 during COVID with our children home and homeschooling and the world upside down. And um, that was just a rough year. And I know Jamie and I are just really, like I said, I, I don't market myself, but we're really proud of the surgeon's daughter. Well, you should be. I mean, the whole books, they're all wonderful and we have lots of fans. Um, I, I love that. I mean, you know, they, the girl in the shadow was so good, but it must mean a lot, as you said, that so many people also like even more, you know, the surgeon's daughter and especially after writing it in such a, a challenging time in everybody's life. Um, <laughs> so you talked a little bit, I'm sorry. Oh no, it was you know, challenging. And we had the feeling of, you know, we, we've created expectations with, with book one and we really didn't want to disappoint. So the, we definitely felt a lot of pressure, um, but it was also an incredible gift and an opportunity to have the space to give our characters more story, to uh, walk with them further down the road. And I feel like so many of them really come into themselves. I feel like victory is more uh, just like want to make you tear your hair out in book two than he is in book one. And, and Harry has oh, the opportunities that come to him just make me so happy for him because we, we really love his character. And we, he had such a terrible dilemma in the first book and uh, and then, you know, Nora and Daniel and Horace to support each other and pull together and to, to make a difference. It, it was a real privilege to be able to, to walk with them further. So I'm really thankful that we could write a book two for them. Well, I should say our Q&A is very, very active and people have lots of questions. So we're going to start pulling some of those. So if you're um, a viewer of this, you can go to our Q&A and, and ask your question. But one question that has been coming up a lot is people wondering if there's going to be a book three. Can you talk about that? <laughs> um, that was always our intention. That's what I can say about that. <laughs> so it's, it was always, we always had a full circle and we always had a stop an event to stop at and we haven't reached it yet. I think that'll make a lot of people very happy. <laughs> Even though we are talking about book one, that's so nice to hear that there's book two, which is out and potential for things to come for these characters. So one of the questions we have in Q&A, this is from Tammy J. Why did you choose to set the book in England versus America? My guess is advances in medicine on, at that location. And um, Jama, I'll start with you. England seemed the natural place because it, and London seemed the natural place because that's where um, John Hunter and John Snow practiced. So uh, he was the seed of our book. So we kept him in situ, uh, you know, writing about a woman 
it would have been fun to have her start in Italy, but it would have been easier to, and where's the fun in that? Yeah, and it, London was also um, the place where the cholera epidemic began that started this whole story. And so that was a pretty important, a pretty important part for us too. Absolutely. Um, we have a question here from, oh gosh, it just ran away from me. <laughs> Sorry to whoever this is. I will find you and chat you out in a minute. But the question is, how did you divide up the book? So did you go by page, chapters, sections? Was it truly just, you know, you were writing together at the same time, fully collaborative? What was your process like? Regina, we'll start with you fully collaborative. So we, um, we did every page, every paragraph, sometimes every sentence together. Um, we would start with writing a scene. We'd assign scenes to ourselves as we went. And then it was literally um, past the baton. So Jamo would write a scene and then I would go in and pretend as if I had written it and I was editing it myself and I would change the words or the sentences or add or subtract. Um, and then, and then she would pass the baton to me and I would write a scene and she would do the same thing. And it was a really exciting time because we would open up our computer and, you know, there was gasping. We're like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen or, Oh, who's this new person. And we just get so excited. It was like a choose your own adventure. And it was baton writing. It was back and forth. And our hands are in everything. Wow. That is so, <laughs> I don't even think I would have imagined just that entwined, but that's beautiful. It really shows uh, that I, I think it's why so many people couldn't even imagine that it's two of you as Audrey and not <laughs> just one person. That's really good. It, it is so exciting. Like one particular time when I remember opening the document and seeing uh, a new thing was the scene um, in Bologna where Nora and Magdalena go to the church and see the terracotta statues. And when I read that Regina's work that day, I, you know, I felt chills. I, I was so excited. And the exciting thing about that is then it propels you to write something after that and you know like we both heavily edit each other's work so we're both very engaged in every part of it but there are times when you pass the baton to your partner and you're expecting uh you know macaroni and cheese and you open it and you have filet mignon <laughs> because you you left macaroni and cheese on the table <laughs> But that's really interesting just to think of it, think of it like just a really good meal because you're, you're working on it together. It's, it truly is collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the way you're, you're putting that. And I'm sort of just this idea that you didn't know what you were going to open up your computer and see is just, and just, that's, that's amazing to me, but I'm, I'm wondering, um, did you ever have any disagreements because of that? Like, were there any situations where somebody wrote something and the other one maybe pushed back on it? Uh, Regina, I'll, I'll hand that to you. Not in the first book. I never really felt that in the first book. By the end of the first, by the end of the second book, there were some times where we would just be seeing different visions. And by the time we came together with a singular vision, 
it was so good, but we had to, we had to kind of wrestle our way there emotionally. And, um, like with the meal, we've made jokes that sometimes one of us starts making chicken and one pours marinara on it. And we say, I was making fajitas. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so sometimes it can just, it can be complicated of, of how far ahead do you see and how much are you trying to plan it and how much are you willing to just let the next person take the next part? So yes, it can be hard to write together, but it's hard to write alone. And as they famously say, choose your hard, like it's going to be different hards. Often when we don't agree on something, the process of explaining to each other and discussing why, you know, this is hard for you to let go or why this is hard for you to make room for this. It, it helps us make it better because then we understand each other's vision more, we get more insight into maybe the undercurrents that one of us was feeling in a scene that the other didn't catch. And so then we can help each other develop a bit more fully. And then sometimes too, we just go with whoever cares the most. I love that. It sounds like you really do have a very collaborative process when you're writing these books together. And so one of the questions we've seen repeated a few times in the chat, and I know we saw in the discussion boards was just how did you two meet? And when did you decide after meeting that you were going to collaborate on um, books together? So Jama, I'll start with you. We met in kind of a crazy way (laughs) because Regina's in Kansas. I'm in Alberta, Canada. And like, you know, like there's nothing that would connect us together, but we both entered in what year was it? 2013? 2012. 2012. Uh, The Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award. And it's kind of a survivor style writing contest. So uh, as we made it up through the different purges or calls, <laughs> more of your manuscript would be uh, available online. And I read Regina's and it was just beautiful. It was so beautiful. I, I found a way to message her or leave a review or somehow we connected through the internet and I um, just told her how much I liked her book and that I was sure she was going to win. And uh she emailed me back right away and she'd read mine and she said the nicest things about it and told me that she thought I was crazy that I had it in the bag. And anyways, I got the satisfaction of being right to Regina one and she's super modest. So she usually, when she tells the story, she doesn't admit it, but truly both of us believe that like finding each other was the prize. Uh, even before the contest was over, we had started sending each other chapters of the our current work in progress. And so we became critique partners for quite a few years. And then Regina said, let's write a book together. And I was completely on board. That's yeah, so I, would say, I would say we met because of Jaina. Like she's the one that reached out. And it, it, is a, it is an odd and a rare thing to get a message from somebody who's competing against you for a big prize that they really want and have them say, your work is wonderful. I hope you win. And I just thought, what kind of a human being is that? Like, that's someone I want to know and that's someone I want to know better. And um, so it was, it was her effort to reach out. That's why we're here today. 
Truly just kind of a a natural work from the start. Maybe. Yeah. But I mean, it takes two, right? Like, I think both of us found warmth and support and encouragement from each other. And that uh, has enabled us to to grow together and and to, to write books together. So we have a lot of questions about your medical backgrounds. Uh, If you have them, how were you able to be so accurate? Um, I'm so excited that we have so many medical professionals in the audience today, but they would like to know if you have a background in medicine, if you have any feedback from doctors or surgeons, if anyone in your life is in medicine, because everyone is in love with how precise everything is. Is it all just... The, the research and the documents you were referencing earlier, what, what was the secret? And Regina, we'll start with you. You should start with Jema on this one because she does have a medical background. Okay, well then we'll I... start with Jema. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a doctor or, you know, a nurse. I'm an, an occupational therapist, actually. And rehab, especially the type of rehab medicine that I practice is super clean, <laughs> which is like what I like because I did take um, human anatomy in school. We had to take six credits of it. We had to do the full uh, cadaver dissection. Um, And I, unlike our characters, found it like super traumatizing. (laughs) So, but as far as like an experience to mine for writing, it was absolute gold because you know, the like the haptic feedback of, what it's like to use a scalpel or uh, to separate fascia from muscle in a cadaver or to um, what it smells like when you open the abdominal cavity. So super helpful. Um, uh, Yeah. Uh, But myself, you know, like it did not spark that like Oh, I've got to do more of this. It was like, I'm going to work in the cleanest <laughs> clinic I can find. How do I stay away from the mess? <laughs> and then For the me, histories, um, watching a lot of YouTube videos of surgeries. It was really frustrating sometimes because in the journals, they would just say like, and then we did this the usual way. And it's like, what the heck is the usual way? <laughs> yeah. So I don't have a medical background of any kind. Um, what I have is a lot of curiosity and a really vivid imagination. So um, as I would read through the journals and they would say a two inch incision on the anterior of the foot, then I would be straight to the internet and I would be looking up what does a two inch incision look like and how deep does it go and what is in the diagrams. And um, I had many days where my daughters would come downstairs and see that I was watching something on TV and be like, oh, what are we watching? Nope, because there I am in the middle of a dissection. I just watched so many dissections and I wanted to see which layers came first and how. So um, all I have is just absolute curiosity and this determination to get it right, to make it real. And if somebody says, something in these medical journals I have an imagination so I can just put myself there and imagine it and that's how it came to be that's so cool honestly like it uh, the for both of your answers it makes absolute sense how there was lived experience and then found experience and I really think that makes such a convincing story and Regina really is super tenacious like if there is 
any chance that she could find out the source or <laughs> what it was like or an account of something or what a room looked like in 1845, <laughs> she will find it. <laughs> and it's not out of this, it's not like a perfectionist thing. It's not this desire for the facts to be perfect. It's that I can't put myself there unless I know what was hanging on the wall and what the angle of the window was. Like, if I'm going to make Nora look at the wall, I need to know what she was seeing and what the sensation was. And so sometimes like Jamie would say, but we don't need to know, like, it's not even gonna go in the book. And I'm like, but I need to know, <laughs> I need to know so I can write the character. And I know it won't end up in the book. And I know that fact won't be there but it's what will make me be able to be behind their eyeballs looking out. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, and as someone who also likes to do like deep dive research and go down Wikipedia rabbit holes for no other reason than just for my own wanting to know, I totally get it. <laughs> uh, a lot of people are in the Q&A are asking just sort of about, you know, the idea of writing a woman at this particular period of time um, in medicine, which was not allowed. Um, but a couple people have asked, in part of your research, did you find any women in history who actually were in Nora's situation? Uh, I'll start with Regina. Um, we should probably start with Jame on this one because she remembers <laughs> names and dates so much better than I do. But um, Elizabeth Blackwell was the first surgeon in America, and she was right in this same time period, maybe about five years behind Nora, um, really close to her. Um, and so, yes, there were women, and you're about to come up to like Clara Barton and Florence Nightingale, and they're coming, like Anderson. they're coming soon after. So um, Nora is just sort of the She's sort of the forerunner of what, what we imagine what could have been during this time period. She's someone who could have existed. If there was someone like her, they stayed hidden. And it was pretty, that was kind of the path for women, especially in, in Britain, who wanted to participate in, you know, unfeminine pursuits. So, you know, you couldn't vote, you couldn't have a political career, but if you're spouse or brother or father was politically minded you could help write their speeches and you could peer into this little hole to see the debates in the house of commons if your brother if you were interested in astronomy and you happen to have a father or a brother who could do it um, you could have a, a name for yourself and speak to the royal society but you had to have that family connection you had to have a sponsor um, so carolyn herschel uh, was a german English uh, astronomer uh, from from the period, um, and there's also, you know, all these fantastic Italian women, you know, practicing doing surgery. But even then, um, uh, after the French occupation of, of Italy, um, they were being elbowed out. Um, so even in Nora's lifetime, fewer and fewer of them are going through university fewer of them are being licensed um, they're being diverted into obstetrics even if that's not their interest because you know women's health is the right place for them to practice I think Jama brings up this really fascinating point of a lot of it would depend on the men in your life if you were able to make this place so this was a time where 
if a man would hold the door open for you, sometimes you could find a way in it. And is that right? No, of course that's not right. But I find in that a bit of comfort because there are such amazing women from this time period. There were men holding open doors. Like it, it shouldn't have been that way and it shouldn't have been necessary, but there were men who were forward thinking too. And men who said, my daughter deserves a chance or my wife deserves a chance and she's as smart too. So in that, I find some beauty and some encouragement too. That's wonderful. So one of the questions that we're getting in the q and I'm going to combine two people's questions. So thank you to Charlotte and Gail. Um, now I'm a romance reader, so I loved that there was a little bit of romance. There was a little bit of a love triangle or some tension there um, in the book, but their questions were asking if there was ever any consideration for writing the book without that like love story romance aspect to the story, or was that always sort of part of what you wanted to include? And I'll start with Jema. I think it was always in our minds. Um, and, you know, we didn't really know what we were writing, but, you know, there is this hugely popular genre of historical romance. And, you know, we weren't trying to write a historical romance, you know, if we had, it didn't quite work. <laughs> um, uh, but we also, I think, impacted when we wrote the book because we knew that if we wanted to sell it, that would be maybe a place that we could find a buyer. Um, it, it turned out that wasn't the space. We're really happy because we really love the stemmanist aspect of this story. Um, but we also love romance. I'm a romance reader. Um, you know, I'll, I don't think a love story is necessary or should belong in every story, but it was such a part of this one that we never considered taking it out. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say that we, we didn't want to write a romance story, but we wanted to write about human relationships. And this was such an important one. And the foil of of a capable man and a capable woman, almost the same age and the differences of what they faced and how they maybe could come together and be stronger because they were together. So I don't, we never wanted this to be a romance novel in any way, shape or form, but I, I can't read a book without relationships. That's what makes everything else matter to me. And I have some humanity and some human interest to and kind of at least a, a splash of love to keep it moving. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've, I've kind of got a twofold question here. So we'll start with the first part. Any thoughts about turning this into a movie? There's so many folks in Q&A saying, I was reading this, I could see it as a film. Uh, any thoughts there? Uh, and Regina, we'll start with you. You get that question so much as a writer that you think that you write a book to write a movie, but you really don't. You write a book to write a book. A movie is a different thing. Would it be exciting to see the emotion that that we have seen? I think Jama and I don't need a movie. We've we've lived it. We have seen all of these scenes in our hearts and our minds. We have been right there. We've smelled it. We've experienced it. Um but a movie would be so much fun. Like, of course, that'd be so much fun to find another way for people to meet these people that mean so much to us. For me, I mean, like, that, 
I mean, I guess I shouldn't say impossible because, you know, over and over you hear and you tell yourself like publishing a book is impossible. Well, we did it and it's so exciting. And so it's, I mean, that's enough, right? Um, I, if I was going to see a, a movie of this, not that I can really even imagine it, but I have seen a show that I feel kind of sparks that similar Gothic vibe. And that's um, Charité, it's uh, German. Uh, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but that's where I watched it years ago on Netflix. And it was, I saw it kind of right after we'd submitted The Girl in His Shadow for copy edits. Um, and it felt like a very familiar space. And I totally loved the show. And to both of you, who would play Nora? If you if you were casting the movie, who do you think would play Nora? Oh, <laughs> I know, a hard you're, question. <laughs> you're asking the worst person ever because my daughters are so embarrassed by me. I'll, they'll, they'll be talking about someone. I'm like, who's that? And they're like, the most famous person in the world. Like, I just, I don't know. I don't know anybody. That's I, fair. I literally just read my history books. I'm a very simple person. Hollywood is one million miles away from my life. That's fair. I would like it if Anya Taylor-Joy was, but, or the actress, and I'm like so bad and I will like have to apologize to her in my head for like a dozen times now. The actress who plays the female lead in Charity because she's fantastic. Hey, that both of those answers work for me. Either begin in your books or Anya Taylor Joy, both great options. And of course, now we'll all be looking up Charity. <laughs> now, Which, as oh, sorry, not someone said that's still on Netflix in case oh, people were curious. <laughs> yeah, watch it. It's so good. If you liked this, watch that. There's the recommendation for follow up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to start to wrap us up. Uh, are either of you working on anything now you can tell us about? What are you working on next? Uh, Jamie, we'll, we'll start with you. Anything in the works? Anything you can share? Of course, you know. We are in the thick of it. We are in the thick of it. Um, uh, like third draft of a standalone book, um, uh, 20th century, so 100 years after Nora, very different, uh, but we're super excited about it. Um, and I, you know, both of our heads are, <laughs> our elbows are, I don't know, what are all those, all, all the like sayings about working hard, we're, we're doing it. <laughs> and once we can come up for air from that, we will think about our next thing. <laughs> yeah. And we've both written books entirely on our own and published our own books. And so there's always like, there's always that. And then the things that we're working on together and then, and then like our actual jobs, like Jema has her patience and I, I teach full-time during the school year cause I'm a homeschool mom. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, um, we're working as fast and as hard as we can to try and put more words together. Right. And we're getting close on this one. Like it's, we're getting close. Yeah. Very exciting. And it sounds like you're both incredibly busy, not only in your <laughs> writing, but in your lives. Uh, 
so grateful for uh, the work that you do and that you share with us all. We are so grateful that uh, you care about our work. It's, it's, I don't know, it's still really incredible to think that we wrote a book and someone has read it. I know. I think, I think when you write a book, what you're really doing is you're, you're building a home and then you write that book and you, you leave the door unlocked and you walk away and it's time to build the next home and it's time to build the next home. And there is nothing more thrilling than to look behind you and see the lights on in your windows and know that someone else has moved in and is occupying that home. And it's there, the readers are keeping it warm for us and they're keeping these people alive for us and they're living in that space. And it is, it, you might think that we're separate, the writer and the reader, but we're in a great collaboration together. And we just, we love our readers so much. Uh, I'm, I'm just like, well, you can tell you're a writer with that. Just like <laughs> off the cuff. <laughs> That was just lovely. That's just lovely. And I'm so glad we had so many people able to participate in both Big Library Read and this chat. Um, if you have readers who want to sort of continue that and, and come to your nice little home and community, where can they find you um, either, you know, together as Audrey Blake or as individual writers. I know you had the Audrey Blake website. So is yes. that probably the best place to direct yes. people? Yeah. Go there, message us, message us at Audrey Blake books on Instagram. Um, talk to us. We'll talk back and let us know what's on your mind and what questions you have. And, and we'll tell you what's on ours. So definitely reach out, find us. We're just, we're just normal gals going about life. So you reach out, we'll reach back. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I think we're just about at time. So um, if people have questions, they can, of course, continue to use the discussion board um, for the very last day or so, I believe, of the Big Library Read. Um, you can get your questions in there. We really appreciate everyone's time today, and we're so glad that we've had such a great turnout. We've seen so many checkouts for this book. Um, and it was absolutely wonderful hearing about everything from both of you. So thank you for being here um, to both of you. Thank you. you. And thank you, honor. Big Library Reads. <laughs> it's been an incredible experience for us. And we just can't thank you enough. It's been really nice to hear. Um, it's just been we've one of the most engaged programs for Big Library Read that I think we've had in a long time. And that's obviously in large part to the book and it really connecting with readers around the world. So thank you everyone for being here. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and sign off um, in just a moment, but again, um, go to biglibrary.com or visit Audrey Blake Books and um, we'll hopefully see you guys again. Thank Thanks you. Thank you. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, 
that's a hard no about saying no and setting boundaries so you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.